0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host Morteza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm very honored to be speaking with Dr. Tony um, Spafford about a wonderful book he published with Yale University Press this year. The book is called "What the Greeks Did for Us." Uh, Dr. Tony uh, Spoffworth is Emeritus Professor of Ancient History at Newcastle University, a renowned expert on the ancient world. He is the presenter of eight archaeological documentaries in the Ancient Voices series on BBC2 and has, has published 12 books, including The Story of Greece and Rome. Tony, welcome to New Books Network.
1: Um, thank you, Mortensa. It's um, great to be with you. Uh
0: you. This is a fascinating. But when I was reading the book, and I also was talking to a friend of mine, I told him that I, would, I told him that I was reading this book, and of course, the title of the book reminded him that of that famous, uh, I think, life of Brian line. What have the Greeks ever done for us? Well, I don't know if the title uh, has anything to do with that. So maybe you could tell us. But I'm interested to know what fascinated you to this history of history and culture uh, of, of Greece. Uh, and how why you decided to write this book, because in the book, you also talk about a lot. Uh, you, you, there are a lot of, uh, let's say, memories or stories, personal stories that you bring into this book. And then you relate them to one particular aspect of Greek culture or history. So it would be great if you could talk to us about that.
1: Um, well, Morteza, I, 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 I mean, when um, well, certainly in my case, I would have to um, dig deep into uh, my childhood, I think, to try to pinpoint what got me interested in old things, because I think that was really how it all began. I remember uh, when I was sort of eight or nine, I was a choir boy in a local church which had an old um, graveyard, and I was um, interested, I don't think many of the other choir boys were, in reading the inscriptions on all these old tombstones. And I think perhaps that was a kind of early intimation of a fascination with the past and also with how the past interacts with the present, with with memory, I suppose. And then at school, I studied ancient Greek from quite early on. I was already studying ancient Greek at little school. And then at big school, I took up ancient history as well. And then once you're drawn into the ancient Greeks specifically, you tend to find that they have something for everyone. I mean, like most um, ancient civilizations, uh, there's always some angle um, um, which uh, you find you can have a personal response to. I mean, I was um, interested from an early age, I don't know why, in family history. And in ancient history, there's a kind of whole sub-discipline, really, devoted to um, family history, to the study of ancient individuals their careers their family ties and so on and quite a lot of my published work on ancient greek history has been in that area i um i the the title for the book and in fact the idea for the book was suggested to me by the publisher yale i'd already published a book with yale a general history of the classical world called the story of greece and rome back in 2018 and You know, much to my surprise, a while later, they uh, got back to me with not only the idea for this book, but also with the title itself. So in a way, I can't take any credit for the title. It was the um, thinking of uh, the publisher. I, I mean, the reason why I was interested in the project once it was suggested to me is because... We're in interesting times uh, culturally where the classics are concerned. And there is a kind of critique among academics of um, generalizing books about the legacy of ancient Greece, which paint too rosy a picture of the ancient Greeks. And um, there is now a bit more interest in a kind of warps and all approach. And I suppose that was what I tried to implement with the. Uh, Um, what the Greeks did for us. That was the kind of thinking.
0: Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. And I think now it makes sense because when I was looking at the chapters, maybe many people would expect, a a book of history would expect to see a chronological narrative, but you have sort of a thematic narrative. You talk about uh, politics, rhetoric, poetry, sports, the idea of beauty, architecture, Greeks on screen, Greeks on stage. So is is that right? Is that why the rationale beh- behind choosing this approach towards writing this book?
1: Well, the, I, I mean, there isn't really a methodology to the book. I felt that I had to introduce the subject of mm. how Greek civilization is still around today. And that did mean devoting at least one chapter, I think it's the first chapter, to the way in which ancient Greek civilization was, to a greater or lesser extent, um, adapted, adopted um, by ancient neighbors, um, crucially including the Romans. And um, I then tried to compress, I mean, it's a ludicrous challenge to compress into uh, one chapter, a story about how the kind of debris, the detritus of ancient Greek civilization, how some of this um, found its way into the civilizations of the of medieval Western Europe and the Mediterranean, uh, including um, the um, civilizations of medieval Islam and um, how um, eventually um, we get to the 19th century where um, Greece and Rome, at least um, in the West, are core components of um, education. And um, in a way, um, the world is being seen by educated people through a sort of ancient Greek and Roman filter. And from that down to today, and then with the Uh, bulk of the book, um, whatever, I think 13 out of its 14 chapters, as you say, I thought that the best way to dip into the uh, uh, meaning of uh, ancient Greece today was thematic to look at different areas of cultural activity broadly defined um, from things like Olympic sports to um, the restaging of ancient uh, Greek plays in order to sample, to offer a snapshot to the reader of um, how ancient Greece in different ways remains with us today. And that really was what I was trying to do with the book, um, not to show in great detail how, for instance, ancient Greek science has influenced uh, human, uh, I I mean, has influenced, uh, say, uh, research into astronomy over the millennia, but um exactly um what the ancient greek legacy means means today and of course it's a ludicrous proposition to try to do that between two covers not least because the ancient greek legacy is something to which many different countries today and cultures today can lay claim to a greater or lesser extent I mean I was thinking in advance of this um, interview that um, I say nothing for instance about Russia and um, in order to do so I would uh, need to immerse myself in um russian culture and history which i'm not really capable of doing i mean you need to be able to read um russian in order to do something like that so what i've done is rather partial it's heavily skewed towards what i call the anglosphere the um uh, uh th- those parts of the world um uh where uh, english is the first language and it's heavily slanted also to what towards i suppose what I'm calling the West, you know, uh, uh, Europe, North America, and the outliers um, of these parts of
0: the world. Um, in uh, the, the, As you mentioned, there are many themes in the book, and i really love to talk about all of them, but unfortunately it's the tyranny of the time. So I tried to talk about, ask you about some of the themes that uh, might be more popular or I'm or personally more interested in, in, in chapter three, you talk about how the Greeks conceived of the idea of ethnic distinctions. Um, for example, how they sort of denigrated Asia, maybe. So can you talk about their perception of uh, ethnicity or ethnic distinctions?
1: Well, the, I mean, ethnic, in fact, is um, a, a word derived from ancient Greek. The ancient Greek word ethnos um, meant to the ancient Greeks something like people, population, group. Now, when talking about sensitive subjects as potentially um, uh, thinking about ancient Greek ethnicity can seem to be in a modern context. I think it's important to understand that any kind of generalizing about the ancient Greeks and um, what they thought um, is um, dangerous. It's as um, fraught with risk as generalizing about what people think today. And you have to allow always for complexity and nuance and at least where the ancient Greeks are concerned for the limitations of the evidence. But once um, all those provisos have been taken into account, you can say for sure that the ancient Greeks were fascinated by what we call ethnicity, uh, by which is meant the observation and the description of what made one population group differ from another. So cultural traits, somatic traits, and so on. And um, for Asia specifically, in the 400s and 300s BCE, um, much of Asia was the home of the Persian Empire. And um, what you find is the ancient Greeks um, based in Europe, they won these great victories on land and sea over the Persian Empire in the early 400s BCE. And this made the Greeks um, start to um, feel themselves superior, both to the Persians themselves, but more generally to the Asian peoples who had allowed themselves to become subjects of the Persian king. And uh, you then get some Greek thinkers who theorize this perceived inferiority of Asian peoples by putting it down to differences in climate which uh, for instance made um, Asian uh, people more prone to submissiveness. I mean this is an ancient Greek way of conceptualizing this perception of inferiority. Mm.
0: Mm. And uh, throughout the book you also try to debunk a lot of myths about the Greek culture and history and I guess one of them is that the Greeks were all white. The idea of white, whiteness maybe came from Greece. Is that true?
1: The um, Well, of course, the somatic appearance of the ancient Greeks, including skin color, you can't easily read it off from the surviving evidence. I mean, I was in Greece just now and I was hearing about the latest work on the DNA of a bunch of skeletons from the 500s BCE, And this work apparently allows the identification of one young male skeleton as having had blue eyes. Now, even if this is correct, it's hardly a basis for generalization. So you have to tread, in my view, very, very carefully on this subject of um, what the ancient Greeks looked like. Um, What is certainly true is that from the 18th century onward, learned Europeans conceived the ancient Greeks as white-skinned, like themselves. And feeding this conception was the fact that the marble used by ancient Greek sculptors um, when they were carving the human figure, it tended to be white marble. And originally, these statues were painted, but over time, the paintwork was usually lost. If you look at ancient Greek writings, insofar as they tell us much about skin colour, We learn, for instance, that the ancient Athenians thought that white was the ideal skin tone for women, and that for men, skin should um, look suntanned. And these are essentially ideological preferences um, that underline thinking, being that the sphere of men was the outdoors, the sphere of women was the indoors. So, as I say, you have to be very careful in drawing inferences either from depictions in ancient Greek art or from ancient Greek writings about what the ancient Greeks looked like. It's um, a, a, a tricky area. But yes, uh, the um, whiteness of um, the ancient Greeks has been a kind of, it, it, it's been a uh, almost, it's become almost mythic really um, uh, uh, in um traditional uh, Western thinking about the ancient Greeks. And now it's being fairly rapidly overturned because you've got all these uh, new scientific techniques, for instance, which pick up traces of colour on these white marble statues. So you can hardly go into a major museum today with um, an important collection of ancient Greek sculpture without being um, confronted by attempts to reconstruct the um, original color scheme, the original paintwork of these figures. So this is an idea which is definitely no longer really current among academics um, or well founded. The idea that um, ancient Greeks somehow were Caucasian white.
0: Mm. Uh, Another part of the book that I really enjoyed myself was, and I didn't know about that, was that uh, there was no consensus about justification of slavery among Greeks and again, just to show how important Greek culture and history is to us even today, again, it was interesting to me to find out that um, American that Americans who were pro-slavery activists in the 19th century, maybe you turned to, to Greek to justify this slavery. Can you talk about, uh, the, for example, uh, the, 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 the way debates were being had about slavery in, in, in ancient Greece and how maybe... Uh, more modern Americans used it. Pro, pro I mean, pro-slavery activists used it, used those arguments to their benefits.
1: Well, I, I think it has to be stated clearly that ancient Greece it was a slave owning society, as was ancient Rome. Subsequently, and there was never an abolitionist movement. And to talk about a debate, evidence for an ancient Greek debate about the rights and wrongs of slavery, I think would be uh, to push what evidence we have too far. What we do know and we know it um, from uh, one ancient Greek philosopher only, Aristotle, who wrote and thought in the 300s BC, we know from Aristotle's writings that in his time, um, there were voices raised against uh, the justice of one human being uh, being, uh, subordinate, being subject, to another. Aristotle himself believed that there was such a thing as natural slavery. He theorised that there were certain, what in modern social sciences parlance would be called outgroups who were naturally suited um, to slavery. And for Aristotle this had nothing to do with skin colour, um, it um, had to do with climate. And I've mentioned already This idea, which we find in Aristotle and also in other ancient Greek writings, so it was evidently relatively widespread, that the peoples of Asia lacked what he called spirit, and this made them congenitally prone to submissiveness. Now, because Aristotle has always been such a towering authority for those who respect the wisdom of the ancient Greeks, what he wrote about slavery was seized upon in the early 19th century by the pro-slavers in the American South at a time when the abolition movement was gaining ground in the early 19th century. And so this was a way in which the authority of ancient Greek civilization um, could be uh, used or abused or misused um, to uh, support um a certain way of thinking in um more modern times uh that i think is the story the story there so so aristotle because he had these views nowadays i mean can be viewed um slightly more ambivalently than i think he might have been viewed in the past when uh, uh um he, he he his uh his function as a kind of legitimator of certain more recent ways of thinking went relatively unchallenged. I mean, that's no longer the case today, obviously.
0: Hmm. Um, another one of the uh, myths that you tried to debunk in the book, maybe, is the idea that ancient Greece was uh, was a haven for hom- hom- homosexuality, but apparently wasn't, uh, despite popular beliefs belief can, can you talk about this part of the book please
1: uh, well again I mean this is a this is a complicated area and it's also an area which is very much subject to ongoing research and revision it's uh, it was only in my lifetime my adult lifetime that the first English language scholarly study of what we call homosexuality, in ancient Greek times was published. And we have to bear in mind that some of our ways of thinking about sexuality are decidedly modern. Homosexuality is a 19th century concept, and what it did, it it diagnosed same-sex desire as a kind of medical condition. Now, in ancient Greek society, before the triumph of Christianity, um, you get the treatment of male desire for males as something essentially natural. It was taken for granted that sexually active males could be as attractive, uh, attracted, I should say, to young males as to young females. And then, because this was very much a warrior world, ancient Greece, um, you find that, uh, say, homosocial bonding between males could tip into what we'd call homosexual. Bonding. So one Greek city, ancient Thebes, had a crack regiment of its army, and this was made up of 150 pairs of male lovers maintained at state expense. Now, on the other hand, ancient Greek ideals of honour and uh, of masculinity meant that some expressions of same-sex desire between males could meet with social disapproval. So a free male of citizen stock, who allowed himself to be sexually penetrated, was seen as unmasculine and as dishonouring himself. And in that sense, ancient Greece wasn't a homosexual Nirvana. And more broadly, men who behaved in public in an effeminate way, through their dress or gestures, for instance, that seems to have attracted disapproval. And well, there's then the question of same-sex relations between females in ancient Greece, and these aren't well documented. You have a female poet called Sappho, who whose poetry praises the beauty and the allure of unmarried girls. And this has been seized upon as uh, um, having... Uh, uh, what in uh, modern parlance uh, we would call uh, lesbian um, overtones or undertones, although the interpretation of this poetry isn't in fact straightforward. I mean, it's not clear, for instance, that ancient Greeks themselves saw Sappho's poetry as a celebration of female desire for females. So always this question of interpretation um, is not straightforward. And if You want to use how the ancient Greeks thought about these things, um, to think about these things in our own time. You have to be um, prepared to do, as it were, the heavy lifting. You've got to be prepared to kind of dig down and take cognizance of um, what is uncertain as well as what is certain.
0: Um, Let's talk about the idea of rhetoric. Uh, that's obviously has been really, really important to Greek and also it left its influence on Western culture as well. So why was this idea, the idea of being able to make a sound argument important to them? And what does it tell us about their attitudes towards uh, the idea of truth?
1: I think with rhetoric, which comes ultimately from um, uh, the ancient Greek uh, sense of um, speaking or saying, Uh, With rhetoric in ancient Greece, uh, you have to be aware, first of all, that ancient Greek society was intensely oral, although they had writing and they wrote things down. Modern research stresses how orality uh, remained absolutely central to communication for centuries after the um, invention of writing and the dawn of um, the history of ancient Greek literature. And in the Greek city-state, face-to-face deliberation was a core aspect of politics. So the ability to speak well, to carry an audience, say to win an argument, this assumed great importance from early on. And it prepared the ground for another development, namely how in the 400s BCE, you get Greeks starting to analyse and theorise what made a good speaker and a good speech. And this is something to do with an analytical cast of mind or propensity, which in certain parts of ancient Greece came very much to the fore from the 500s BCE onwards, this analytical compulsion. And thinking about what made a good speaker and what made a good speech gave rise to a demand for teachers of what the ancient Greeks were now starting to call rhetoric, which uh, means essentially the skill of speaking in public. Now, once this happens, at the same time, um, you find thoughtful Greeks who um, see the danger of rhetoric. And the danger for these Greeks um, was that um, you could get a skillful or well-taught speaker who could persuade good people to do bad things, and the ancients came to see this as a weakness, in fact, of democracy, and it has this point of view, obviously a continuing uh, resonance today. Now, rhetoric also colored truthfulness in ancient Greek history writing, in the sense that, well, the most obvious sense is the way in which um, in the 400s BCE already, you find Greek history writers who openly admit to inventing the speeches which they give to their historical characters. But more broadly speaking, in ancient Greek history writing, you get some ancient Greek historians whose Uh, texts are very obviously uh, composed in the light of um, a rhetorical training in one form or another. You get exaggeration, you get um, drama, you get colour, all of which um, is aiming to uh, create a certain kind of mood in the audience or readership for the text. Uh so so, uh so so in that sense uh, re- there's a there comes to be a, a bit of an overlap between rhetoric and um uh history writing and what you also have to remember finally and this is terribly important is that um all educated Greeks the educated elites of the ancient greek states um they all came to be um thoroughly educated in rhetoric because um, uh, political leadership, as I've been explaining, um, required rhetorical skills. If your city was sending you off to on an embassy to King Alexander to ask for something for um, your city-state, uh, you needed um, to uh, be able to uh, offer an eloquent speech before the king. And um, this coloured um, many aspects of um, ancient Greek culture in the end, um, the uh, idea of rhetoric, of persuasion, that you could make things seem um, what they were not.
0: Uh, it, it was great that you talked about the idea of rhetoric and how important it was, and I think it would be remiss of me not to ask you about uh, the great work of literature, Iliads, uh, Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. You You talk about that in your book. You say that the These two works provide both a literary and also a moral education for the Greek. So I was wondering if you could briefly introduce, talk about this book, what you mean by these books providing moral education. And I'm also fascinated to know why these books have still remained with us and still resonate with us.
1: Um, Well, I think with Homer, we need to start by realizing that the ancient Greeks, they saw Homer as the king of poets. And poetry in ancient Greece was not a cultural outlier, as with due respect to today's poets, it perhaps is today. You have to remember that um, when Greeks started to write literature, they always wrote poetry. The surviving plays, for instance, from the glory days of Athenian drama from the 400s BCE, uh, Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides, they're all written in poetic format. And um, the ancient Greeks looked back on Homer as the master of poetic language. His, uh, His poetry was drummed into them as part of their education. So all Greeks could quote Homer but his value lay not just in the beauty of his language, but also in his morality. And this is because Greeks found in Homer, I suppose you could say, a collection of examples of how to act and not to act in relation to others, including um, in relation to the gods. So he was a kind of Greek Bible in the absence of any actual Bible, in the sense of a collection of sacred precepts revealed by the divine, as you have with the Old and New Testaments, or with the uh, Quran. Um, now, it, 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 it's I keep saying things are hard to explain, but it is hard to, I think, sum up, at any rate, um, why Homer um, has had such An influence and continues to be read even today. But you've only got to think of the repeated appearance of new translations of both the Iliad and the Odyssey to appreciate the continuing pleasure and value which readers find in Homeric poetry. And I'm just talking really about translations into English, um, the ones which I'm aware of and come across from time to time. And I think to explain this continuing popularity, I mean, I would start by saying above all, the Iliad and the Odyssey are just terrific pieces of storytelling. They have almost everything. You've got fantasy worlds, but you also have this extraordinary humanity. You have war, you have violence, uh, what You have suffering, you have cunning, sex, you have family, you have heroic males, you have seductive females. And you only have to think of some of today's writers to see how you can spin this material to fit contemporary concerns. So just now you have um, uh, an academic in the States, Emily Wilson. She's just translated The Odyssey with an avowedly feminist slant. So uh, the hero uh, disuse emerges in uh, Wilson's translation with his heroism somewhat tarnished. You have Madeleine Miller, an American author who's turned the Iliad sort of homo social relationship between Achilles and his uh, bosom friend Patroclus, into a gay romance and so on
0: yeah i i I actually wanted to mention the new translation which you just did it 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 is fascinating how this work has still uh, remained with i mean it still has influence on us and how many times it's been um sort of you know rewritten to 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 kind of highlight different aspects of it as you just mentioned um let's talk about the enlightenment so is is this true that the scientific revolution and also the Enlightenment sort of started because European thinkers decided to get rid of the ancient Greek knowledge, science and wisdom?
1: I, I think what is true is that from at least the 1500s on, you start to get the scientific advances of more recent times. And what these do is they correct and in important areas, they supersede ancient Greek wisdom. So ancient Greek wisdom on, for instance, astronomy had continued to be a guide for the medieval uh, world, both um, the world of Islam and uh, the world of um, Christendom. But from the 1500s on, you start to get new discoveries which are making some of this wisdom obsolete, such as Um, it becomes accepted that the earth rotates around the sun, not the other way round, as um, the ancient Greeks believed. You get Western medicine finally discarding a central tenet of ancient Greek medicine, which was that the human body is made up of different types of what the ancient Greeks called juices. Um, or uh, humours, as they've come to be known. And um, the ancient Greek idea was that um, good health was a matter of keeping these uh, different juices in a state of balance. So you get the jettisoning gradually in early modern times of um, some of the um, key positions of ancient Greek science, as uh, we would call it today. But what does remain true, of course, is that in many areas of Western thought, the ancient Greek thinkers, they started lines of inquiry, which still form the subject matter of modern academic disciplines in the West. West. And uh, philosophy, I suppose, is the most obvious of these. Mathematics about which I know nothing would be another.
0: And uh, uh, another part of the book that I'm sure many people have 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 always thought about is the idea of uh male beauty that you discuss in the book from the point of view of the Greeks. so how how did they conceptualize or represent the idea of male beauty and i'm also interested to know why they filled their streets with statues and paintings was it a political uh was there a political message to this i think first of
1: mm-hmm. all it has to be grasped just how exceptional this ancient greek appetite for the depiction of undressed males was i mean there was nothing like it in any other ancient culture that we know of and you know that goes for ancient chinese civilization as well And the ancient Greeks, they had this. It was a sort of voracious appetite for representations of young males in the prime of life. And the fact that these representations from the start were of naked bodies, it indicates a society which was deeply appreciative of male beauty in all its aspects. And um, this deep appreciation, I don't know, it seems to have created a cultural climate in which artists felt free to experiment and to explore. And one extraordinary result of this uh, freedom to experiment and explore was the gradual mastery by ancient Greek artists of the illusion of realism in the depiction of the human form. And where male beauty was concerned, this took the form of anatomical curiosity, and it must have taken the form of observation from life. And then once um, you get Greek sculptors by the early 400s BCE able to realise in marble or bronze a lifelike depiction of male beauty, you then find them experimenting with Different versions of ideal types of male beauty. And it's very hard for us because if ancient Greeks wrote about these things, the thinking behind their appreciation of young male beauty and its depiction in art, those writings don't survive. What we just tend to see are, for instance, you know, one. Greek sculptor will come up with a rather kind of stocky, architectural looking uh, construction of um, male anatomy. Um, A later sculptor will come up with um, um, a sort of taller, thinner, more attenuated type of um, male physique. We can't entirely get at the thinking uh, always, as so often with ancient Greece, um, behind these um, cultural preferences. As as far as the ubiquity of this kind of imagery is concerned, it's important to know that much of the public art of a Greek city, it took the form of offerings to please the gods in their temples and shrines. So the context was religious, rather like medieval art in um, Western Europe was essentially Christian art. They also um, liked to put um, sculpture and statuary um, to mark uh burials so you get cemeteries full of um statuary and um um, sculptured monuments now where the patron of an artwork was a greek state you certainly could get politics creeping in so we know that greek states for instance expressed their rivalries through competitive offerings in shrines religious shrines common to all the greeks places like olympia and delphi so there's a political edge to the display of, and the commissioning of a monument say by Athens, which is directly opposite in Delphi, a monument put up by the Spartans because the Spartans and the Athenians were great rivals in the 400s BCE. And when you get Greek monarchs, when you get monarchy as a a powerful uh, and indeed dominant um, uh, uh, form of state with, say, Alexander the Great, um, you get um, kings who are um, interested in controlling their image. Alexander, for instance, we're told, um, controlled his image by appointing, in effect, court artists to paint and to sculpt him. I mean, it's hard to answer quite why Greek cities were so full of public art, there's um, been nothing quite like it either before or since. And because the ancient Greeks clearly took for granted this explosion of um, painting and uh, sculpture in public, they tended not to um, think it um, needed explanation in their writings. One answer to me um, might be an appreciation of artistry for its own sake, especially once Greek artists were able to create the illusion of realism. And it is clear from reactions to artworks in ancient Greek writings that ancient Greeks could be moved to wonder by this kind of art. For instance, they would praise statues which seemed so lifelike as to be about to move, or say, um, paintings which could fool wildlife. So you get stories of marvelous paintings where birds, real birds, would come and peck at painted fruit, for instance. Um, so uh, this illusion of realism was something which really fascinated the ancient Greeks and caused them to marvel.
0: Um, I have another question. I, 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 I myself might my, my initial, let's say, or when I was uh, in in primary school and then secondary school, my initial knowledge of the Greek culture mainly came from classic Hollywood movies. And to to what extent do you think, uh, Hollywood movies, especially classic Hollywood cinema, accurately depict or even popularized our passion for the Greek civilization?
1: I think film. I mean, my sense is that film certainly helps to popularize ancient Greece, keep it in the public eye or introduce it to the public eye. It's a hunch, I mean, it's hard to prove. What you can do is you can look at box office figures, which can be very impressive. And you can look at the fact that as soon as you get a movie industry coming into being early in the 20th century, you start to get films being made of um, ancient Greek stories, what we call ancient Greek mythology, but also ancient Greek history. I think the first film about ancient Troy, the subject of um, Homer's poem, The Iliad, it's made before the First World War. I mean, I think as for truthfulness, nowadays, at any rate, there's less concern generally, I think, for accuracy on the part of either the maker or the consumer. I mean, if you think of the big blockbusters of the 21st century to do with ancient Greece, I'm thinking of Alexander um, or Troy or 300, they all took liberties to a greater or lesser extent. I have colleagues, academic colleagues um, who are uh, or can be um, horrified by these liberties. I personally think, as someone who made a living from teaching uh, undergraduates about the ancient world, um, that anything that brings the ancient world to life um, should uh, be in a way lauded, should be welcomed. I don't know with the distant past, whether it matters so much that there's an element of distortion in what after all um, is uh, popular culture. If you want to know more, if you have had your interest uh, 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 um, uh, encouraged by having been to see a film about Alexander, it's not hard um, to go and find um, a way of deepening your knowledge by going off and reading a book, for instance. I think obviously with movies that distort recent history, it's a different matter and um, potentially a more serious matter. But that's another question.
0: Um, Another thing that I really found uh, fascinating in your book was that the idea of nudity in Greek sports was actually seen as an indicator of social justice uh, I'm sure many people might find it a bit surprising. So it would be great if you could talk about how nudity represents justice or social justice.
1: The the, the fact that ancient Greek males um, uh, uh, competed, uh, you know, in running contests or um, the uh, javelin or the discus or whatever, um, uh, with no clothes on, it's been much debated, although insofar as ancient Greek writings touch on the subject, what they imply, I mean, without quite stating the fact, is that the ancient Greeks thought of male nudity in sports as a kind of levelling down. That is to say, if you all appeared naked, all athletes were equal, at least sartorially. And The context here is the fact that this was a world, the ancient Greek world in which the rich then as now could use dress and jewelry to assert social status. And nudity in this context then becomes a kind of uniform um, which um, makes you all in one sense look the same. I mean, you would have to imagine um, that even loincloths, which we are told Greek athletes originally did wear before nudity became the norm, that even loincloths um, could be made in such a way as to um, uh, express social difference but there's not much point in speculating there we simply don't have the evidence but this is now the way in which um ancient greek nudity in sport is thought there have also been um ideas that it somehow made um whatever the sport in question was more comfortable um i used to have a, a colleague sadly no longer with us who um tried um running um somewhere in the north of England um with no clothes on um to see how it went and um well I mean all he could report was that um uh, it didn't um, really impair him but if we confine ourselves to what the ancient greeks actually wrote about uh the question of um, athletic nudity as i say um they seem to have um, thought originally more in terms of what i've called in the book social justice to uh m- make um, things um, look
0: equal uh, now, now that we are talking about sports i guess it's a good opportunity to also talk about olympic games which you discuss in the book uh how what, what new elements were, how did they differ, let's say, from the Greek Olympic Games and what new elements were introduced? And I'm particularly interested in this story of how the Nazis distorted Olympic Games and that character, Pierre Do, if I'm pronouncing the name correctly, Coubertin, that you talk about in the book. It would be great if you could um, talk about this part of the book. It's important
1: to understand that The modern Olympics, they were never intended to be a slavish revival of the ancient games at Olympia in the Peloponnese in southern Greece. And some very obvious differences are the inclusion of um, modern events for women and the admission of females as spectators. At ancient Olympia, the audience was also exclusively male, um, as well as uh, the contestants being male only. And the modern games also include numerous new types of contests, such as Olympic swimming or Olympic gymnastics. And they also exclude some of the most popular contests in the ancient Olympics, namely charioteering. And last but not least, today's Olympic contestants keep at least some of their clothes firmly on. So those are just some of the ways in which the idea of the ancient Olympics is uh, reshaped for um, a modern, a contemporary world. Now, um, the um, driver of the uh, creation of the modern Olympics, I mean, the first modern Olympics took place in 1896. He was a French aristocrat, a baron called Pierre de Coubertin, And what really interested him was the promotion of fitness and not least um, how um, to make um, Frenchmen more fit. And by the late 19th century in Western culture, um, you're in a world in which um, sport has become, I think, associated with good health, both of the body and of the mind. And by the late 1800s, there were people who wanted to scale up this association and encourage sportiness as a form of kind of national improvement and this was a time when the ancient olympic games were more or less common knowledge in the west and de coubertin You know, he was a one-off and he had a vision um, which at the time was uh, uh, highly unusual. Um, He had a vision of sport as an international movement where you could get representatives of different countries competing against each other. And the ancient Olympics provided a loose model because there too the contests were organised on an interstate basis. You have Athenians competing against Spartans and so on. And the attraction of the ancient Olympics was that they offered this precedent which had all the prestige of ancient Greek civilization behind it at a time in the late 19th century when admiration for ancient Greece was still pretty universal among educated people in the Western world. And so what they did was um, to legitimize, in fact, what was a novelty um, at the time of the first modern Olympics in Athens. Now, as for the Nazis, they used their hosting of the 1936 Olympics in Berlin as a platform for advertising Nazi ideas, especially Nazi ideology, especially about race. And this is nowadays well understood, and um, it's been well studied. And the most obvious innovation, I would say, was the Olympic torch. Now, there was no such ritual of uh, torch bearing in the ancient Olympics, nor was there such a ritual in the modern Olympics prior to Berlin 1936. the Olympic torch, this is the ceremony which sees the lighting of a flame inside the archaeological site of ancient Olympia in modern Greece. And in 1936, relays of athletes then ran holding the torch until finally it reached Berlin. And there, the last relay runner, he um, he used the flame to light a fire in a tripod at the Olympic Stadium, and you have in Hitler's presence, you have the president of the German Olympic Committee, then making a speech in which he tells the audience of tens of thousands, that what this ceremony of the torch had done was to create a um uh, a kind of spiritual bond between the german fatherland and ancient greece and he then went on to say that ancient greece had been settled nearly 4000 years earlier by immigrants From the North. And this uh, was um, a whole ideological strand in Nazi uh, racism and eugenics, um, which actually made the ancestors of modern Germany also (laughs) the ancestors of the ancient Greeks. Well, all this nowadays, I mean, it's not laughable because, unfortunately, um, racism is um, uh, far too prevalent still in the modern world. The interesting thing about this invented tradition by the Nazis of um, the Olympic torches that it didn't lapse with the defeat of Nazi Germany in 1945. I mean, as we all know, it remains very much a part of today's Olympic movement with the ceremony in um, the archeological site of Olympia, um, where you have um, young Greek women um, dressed in sort of ancient Greek-looking garb and the um, uh, uh, the torches lit. And uh, then nowadays it may well end up um, on a plane, um, given the globalisation of the Olympic movement and um, the fact that hosts now include places like Tokyo and Beijing and so on
0: uh professor uh, tony Spafford, thank you very very much for talking to us about your wonderful book i, I really enjoyed listening to it, and i strongly recommend this book to our listeners what, what i uh, really loved about the book was that as we mentioned at the beginning it was sort of thematic and you can sort of read the chapters maybe independently of one another and it's fascinating because you have included a lot of your own anecdotes into this story so it doesn't really read like a history book in that sense, but it gives you a lot of information about uh, the history and culture of uh, the ancient Greece. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you, Mortessa, and um, I'm uh, very appreciative of the interest um, you've taken in the book. Thank you.